My podcast pal, support for today's House of Carbs comes from Hotel Tonight, an awesome app for finding and booking great deals at great hotels. No crashing on an air mattress in your childhood bedroom this holiday season. Instead, lock down your holiday plans with Hotel Tonight. Book a room up to seven days in advance everywhere and up to 100 days in advance in certain major cities or just wait until the last minute. That's more your speed. It is often my speed. You can make a break for it when your Uncle Tony starts talking the politics. Whether you need a room for tonight, the holidays or beyond, you definitely want to download the Hotel Tonight app. Podcast Pals, today's show also brought to you by Touch Bistro. Hey, restaurant owners, are you looking for an all-in-one system that will help your servers improve their service, turn tables quicker, and increase their sales? Then check out Touch Bistro, the number one rated iPad POS system for restaurants. Touch Bistro lets your servers send orders directly from your customer's table, which means they can spend less time running back and forth and more time catering to your customers. Become a paying customer, my restaurant owner pals. By December the 31st, Touch Bistro will get you a $300 gift card. That's a lot of cash. Go to touchbistro.com slash carbs to learn more. That's touchbistro.com slash C-A-R-B-S carbs. My taste buds, welcome back to another edition of House of Cars, part of the Rigor Podcast Network. This is, as you know, my hungry homies, a food podcast for the hungry people by the hungry people, and I am your hungry host, Joe House. I am very pleased to present to you this week a guest that I have been wanting to have on the show for a while. I love his book, The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science. We have Kenji Lopez-Alt on. He's currently at SeriousEats.com, acting as a chief culinary consultant. But I wanted to get him on the show and kind of walk through his thinking, how he came to uh, this pursuit of science and food. And we had a great conversation, so please stay tuned for that. And of course, some outstanding stories on Food Noobs. We're in Australia, we are in Applebee's, and we're talking about some queso at Chipotle, of course. But before we get to those great stories, let's get in that belly with Kenji Lopez out. All right, my hungry homies, my taste Buds, I am very, very excited about the guest that we have for you today. This is a guy that I have been wanting to have on the pod since we got this thing going. The gentleman is the chief culinary consultant of Serious Eats and the author of the James Beard Award-nominated column, The Food Lab, in which he unravels the science of home cooking. He is a restaurant-trained chef a former editor at Cook's Illustrated Magazine, and he released his first book, The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking 
through science in 2015, which went on, of course, to become a New York Times bestseller. He is the recipient of a James Beard Award, was named Cookbook of the Year in 2015 by the International Association of Culinary Professionals. Kenji Lopez-Alt, welcome to House of Carbs. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Great. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. I have yeah, long been uh, a secret admirer of yours, but I have to confess it has been uh, something of a love-hate relationship. So let me let me explain. <laughs> uh, I intend no offense to a to a brand new guest to the pod. Um, I absolutely. <laughs> this sounds like all of my relationships. So. <laughs> I I absolutely uh, adore. That's probably over. I don't want to overstate it. I don't want to butter you up too much right out of the box. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of uh, the Food Lab um, posts on Serious Eats. But here's my problem. There is when when I go okay. on Serious Eats, which is uh, for the hungry homies out there, uh, website seriouseats.com, the destination for delicious food with recipes, trailblazing science, guides to eating. So Kenji uh, is a chief culinary consultant on there and posts uh, quite mm -hmm. frequently uh, by way of his uh, column, the Food Lab. When I go on there, Kenji, I can't eat just one. It's like opening a can of Pringles. I know that I, that's lowbrow, <laughs> but I'm 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 not gonna get in there and be able to just sort of see what your your latest posting is. I always find myself down a food science food hole. I guess I'd call it. I don't know. Um, and I, <laughs> I I I I can't consume anything that you do in less than an hour. Uh, I don't, so, so thank you for that, I guess is what I was saying. Nice. Well, you've, you've, you've fallen into the, uh, into the trap that our web designers set is that, 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 <laughs> that, that, that you, you are like the perfect reader. That's exactly what they want to hear. Well, look, uh, quite a bit of, of my attention. <clears throat> if I had to describe the allocation of my time, if I'm going to spend that hour, 75% mm -hmm. of it is on places that you take me through, through your, um, uh, whatever topic of the day that you've posted and then things that I, I, you've introduced that I want to learn more about. So I'm down, you know, I'm off to Googling things. Um, but mm -hmm. in, in any event, I, I think it's uh, helpful for, for our group, for our listeners here at House of Carbs, if we could do a little bit of your, your food origin story. Now, I, I have your book. I have oh, it, sure. in fact, sitting here with me, The Food Lab. But um, And you lay all of this out beautifully in the book. Uh, but but let's um, ha have the listeners hear a little bit about your food origin story. Um, well, my, I mean, you know, I... I came from a family where there was uh, dinner at you know dinner at the table every night. My mom cooked every night. Um, it was always my mom and three kids um, and my dad when he wasn't at work. Um, and so you know it, 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 we did have sort of a, a serious meal time every day. But um, uh, my mom was um, an okay cook, not a great cook. Um, didn't have a huge repertoire, um, you know. And and she was one of those people who kind of cooked because she had to. You know, she it was her responsibility. She felt it was her responsibility, um, so she did it. But you know, basically, as soon as the kids moved away, she stopped cooking. Um, so there wasn't actually much sort of interest in food that I had growing up, um, either in my family or or personally. Um, and you know, even through college, like I kind of didn't really like most food, um, like. I remember like my I remember my sophomore year in college, I went out to dinner with um, my, my girlfriend at the time and her parents took us out to dinner. 
Um, and we went to this really fancy restaurant in Boston where there was a tasting menu. It was Radius in Boston. Um, I don't know if it's still there. It probably still is. Um, they had a tasting menu. Um, and so her and her parents ordered the tasting menu. Um, and I kind of scanned down and I'm like, uh, halibut. Like, I don't eat, I don't really eat fish. Like, well, I don't understand what that word is. Yeah. Like, and I ended up just ordering a steak. So I sat there on the side and ate a steak while they went through this, like, <laughs> 12 course tasting menu. Um, and I didn't feel like I was missing out. Um, it actually, you know, it wasn't actually until I started cooking that I really sort of started appreciating food. Um, so I got, you know, I kind of fell into a job, a summer job as a, as a restaurant cook, like a prep cook. Um, uh, mainly just cause I wanted to take a summer off from doing sort of academic stuff. Um, cause that, that's what I've been doing the last few years. Um, and so I found myself, uh, working in a kitchen, um, and it turned out that, I, I mean, I just really loved it basically from, from the get go. Um, um, I liked the, you know, the pace of it. I liked, um, the way you had to work with other people. Um, I liked sort of this idea that I'm taking, you know, these cheap raw ingredients and turning them into something that, you know, somebody over there is paying 35 bucks for, you know, whatever they were paying. But, um, so I, I kind of like this whole idea that I like, you know, I was, I was adding value and it was also just sort of like an adrenaline rush working in kitchens. Um, so I basically stuck with that and, um, and it wasn't really until I started working at sort of nicer restaurants that I really started to actually appreciate, um, the food itself, um, and started wanting to go out to other places to eat. We started wanting to learn more about ingredients and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, initially I just saw it as sort of a fun job. You know, but I could have been, yeah, so you uh, I could you know could have been working in a factory. I could have been I could have been changing tires, whatever it was, you know, it was it was, it was sort of the day to day ritual and actual manual labor part of it that I enjoyed. Um, and it wasn't until a lot later that I sort of actually started liking the food element of it, yeah. and and um, just for context purposes, for the hungry hobies out there, you, this this mm-hmm. period in your life when you um, kind of fell into the cooking job, you were in college at MIT pursuing a degree in, in yes. architecture, right? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, that's right. But, um, but you were yeah, doing. So I was, I you was, were also you had science classes that were there were filled up your uh, your semester itinerary. Um, yeah, my, I mean, my entire sort of um, career plan up until that point was to be a, a scientist or an engineer. Um, and so, yeah, I was studying architecture and structural engineering at MIT. Um, and, um, you know, that's sort of what I was going to do um, um, until I sort of realized that I much preferred working in restaurants to working in architecture firms. Um, actually, you know, actually, after I graduated, um worked in restaurants for a number of years. Um, and then I actually went back and worked in an architecture firm for about six months or so. Maybe it was mostly at the behest of my mother who, um, uh, still didn't really see a future in cooking and thought that I was throwing away my degree and said, I should at least give it a try. And so I did. And I went and worked in an architecture firm for like six months, um, uh, hated it. Uh, and then went right back into restaurants after that. Yeah. And so you're, your path included, you know, actual line cook and then, you know, some some chef um, experience before you landed mm-hmm. at, at Cook's Illustrated magazine. H- how did that happen? Um, well, you know, I've been working in restaurants for a while and, um, you know, I have a general sort of policy back then and still now that like if I'm at a job where I'm not really learning anything, then uh, it's time to look for a new job. You know, um, like I, I enjoy constantly learning and constantly being challenged. Um, and so um, at the restaurant I was at, it was sort of coming to that time where it was like, you know, I should start I should start looking to um, a different restaurant, maybe some, somewhere where I'm going to learn a different set of skills, um, something like that. Um, you know, like I never I never want to be sort of like 
the top at any position because then it means I'm, there's nobody to learn from. Um, and so I was kind of looking for looking around for another job. Um, and at the same time, I was also sort of growing a little bit tired of the um, not not necessarily the day to day restaurant lifestyle, but um, more it was more the fact that um, like I never saw my family on holidays. Um, I didn't, you know, I couldn't go out with friends very often just, you know, just because of the hours that restaurants demand of you. Um, right. um I sort of did miss my social life and my family life a little bit. Um, so I started just exploring other options and, um, a friend of mine just saw an ad for, um, a test cook position at Cook's Illustrated magazine. And that, um, I mean, it seemed basically perfect. Um, and it was actually ba- like basically a, a custom design job for me almost because, um, it allowed me to. Well, to continue cooking and continue making food and doing, you know, doing that element of it. Um, but it also um, allowed me to um, explore the more sort of the science side of it, um, which is something that yeah. in restaurants, you don't really get a chance to do that. You know, restaurants are really all about production and consistency. Um, and so there's not really that much time to sit there and say, try, you know, cooking this chicken 17 different ways. Um, you do it the one way you know that works um, and, and that's it. Um, and so I had always had these questions, you know, like, why, why are we doing it like this? What, what if we tried it this way? What if we did this? Um, but I never really had sort of an outlet to, um, explore those, um, those ideas. Um, and that's really what sort of Cooks Illustrated offered me, um, was that it was a job where my job was to cook chicken 17 different ways and, um, and really sort of ask these sort of fundamental questions about technique, um, and flavor and why we do things the way we do them and whether there are potentially better ways to do things. Um, so yeah, it was, I mean, I, it, it was a long and grueling application process. Like they, they really vet their employees like I mean, better, more, more closely than any job I've ever had. Um, huh. um, it, you know, it involves like multiple interviews. It involves going in and cooking for, um, doing like doing a cooking test. It involves, um, privately developing a recipe and writing a full article. So essentially like you're doing what a test cook there would do like in a month of work and, and you're expected to do all that just for the application. Um, but you know, it means they end up hiring good people. Um, and I, I, you know, I still think cooks illustrated produces some of the sort of the smartest cooking articles around. Yeah. It's too bad. They didn't think about, you know, uh, videotaping some of that vetting process. It could have turned into a beautiful cooking show, cooking competition show. <laughs> I mean, it yeah, sounds maybe. very much like uh, what we see on, and some of the shows, you know, that populate the airwaves these days. Yeah, the applicant. But it, call it. In, in in any event, um, so uh, it sounds like, you know, kind of the foundation for the food lab um, entries on Serious Eats and then really mm-hmm. the foundation for your for your book um, was built there at at um, at Cook's Illustrated. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, def- definitely the idea that, um, um, well, so a lot of it was, was a lot of, a lot of what I learned there, I think the most imp- important lessons I learned there actually was, um, really learning how home cooks, um, operate and think, um, and what people are looking for in a recipe. Um, because working in, you know, I worked in restaurants up until then and I thought I knew how to cook, um, you know, and I, and to, in a certain way I did know how to cook. Um, but cooking in a restaurant is very different than cooking at home. Um, and the types of dishes you cook, um, are different. The type of equipment you use is different. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's a big, and this is not sort of a value. I'm not saying one is better or worse than the other, but you know, there, there's a fundamental difference between restaurant food, um, and home cooking. Um, and so learning, um, 
basically from scratch about about home cooking because I was never really a home cook before that. I never cooked growing up or anything. Um, basically learning from scratch about home cooking um, and having sort of the amazing resources that Cooks Illustrated does because it has because they do you know they do survey after survey. Um, we do we would do like. Um, tasting pan, we would, we would do cooking panels where we'd get um, readers to come in and cook in the kitchen and sort of observe them and see how they interpret different instructions in a recipe. Um, doing all these taste tests of supermarket equipment um, ingredients, um, testing sort of consumer grade equipment, all that stuff um, is, um, I think, really the most valuable things I learned because it, it's it, it it's what allows me. I think has allowed me to write recipes that I think actually really work for home cooks um, because. Um, just because of the sort of extensive amount of research that um, Cooks Illustrated um, and, and by extension me um, did um, on learning how, home pe- how people cook at home um, and designing recipes to make to, to take all those sort of things into account. Um, so, you know, that, that I would say is probably the biggest lesson I learned at Cooks Illustrated. Um, obviously, sort of there, there's a sort of procedural similarity um, in terms of how I develop recipes now um, that um, started there. Um, I do things a little bit differently than they do there, but um, the whole idea of sort of systematizing it and um, testing out different variables, isolating variables, you know, basically treating it um, the way um, you know, do, using science, um, isolating variables, seeing what the results are, trying to come up with hypotheses as to why these things do what they do, um, testing those hypotheses, et cetera. Um, that's sort of, um, well, it, you know, it's, it's sort of burnt into my, into my, my DNA, just, just growing up, you know, um, cause my family was a very sort of science oriented, um, family, but, um, applying that to cooking, uh, is what I learned at Cooks Illustrated. Um, and yeah, def- definitely, um, those are all sort of skills that, um, I've brought to serious eats and to the food lab. Yeah. And I, I love the very first line of the book. My grandfather was an organic chemist. My father was a microbiologist and I was a little nerdling, which really sets the stage yeah. <laughs> beautifully. And I'll tell you, you caught me. This is how I became, um, an immediate, do you, a, a Kenji fanatic, if, if, it, if, if, <laughs> if, if that's okay. Um, you, you introduce, um, kind of the underlying approach to how you're going to tackle food in this book, in the food lab mm-hmm. by, um, exploring the idea that, um, New York pizza is, uh, mm-hmm. better. It's the best in the world because of the water. And and you right, do a very right. methodical and spoiler, it's, that's kind of total bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, like, <laughs> tell the tell the folks, anybody, the people who haven't had a chance to look at your book, you, you know, give them the background a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, there there is this idea. So I'm from New York, um, and um, I think New York has the best pizza in the world. Um, I've heard even people not from New York think this sometimes, um, but anyhow, cer- certainly New York is in the running for one of the one of the best styles of pizza in the world, or one of the best pizza cities in the world. Um, yeah. And you know, I, I live now in the Bay Area, and there's dozens of places that are called New York Pizza or Brooklyn style pizza or whatever it is. You know, just naming, calling themselves New York Pizza. Um, the pizza is generally not very good, like certainly not as good as the best pizza you can get in New York. Um, and you know, this is sort of a known phenomenon that when you try and make New York pizza outside of New York, um, it doesn't work very well. Um, and so a lot of people have theorized that it has something to do with the tap water in New York. I don't know where um, the idea started, um, but um, a lot of people believe that it has to do with the specific qualities of the tap water. Um, so, um, so you know, I wanted to see if this was really true or not. Um, so I designed this experiment where um, I went to a, a pizzaiolo, um, uh, Matthew Palombino, who uh, runs... Um, Motorino, uh, there, there's um, a couple branches in, in New York now. Um, one of the best pizzerias in New York though, but, um, I, I went to him, um, 
And what I did was I got him, uh, well, so, okay. So first of all, what I did was I sourced a bunch of different types of water. Um, so uh, distilled water, uh, New York tap water, um, water, bottled water various, uh, with various degrees of total dissolved solids, because that's, that's really mainly the difference between two different uh, sources of water is the, the types of solids that are devol- dissolved in them. So, you know, it could be um, mag- magnesium, sodium, chloride, like all, all, it's pretty common what, what's dissolved in them, but the amount of those dissolved solids uh, varies pretty drastically. So distilled water has none, um, where New York tap water has a fairly high amount, um, something like um, Evian has a huge amount of it. Um, And so what I did was I got all these different types of water. Um, I had uh, an assistant, um, uh, my wife in this case, um, take those types of waters and put them into... (laughs) Well done, well done. (laughs) Put them into um, bottles uh, that were only distinguished by number. Um, so she was the only one who knew which water went into which bottle. Um, so then I um, took those bottles um, and brought them to Matthew, uh, who made pizzas, uh, pizza dough out of uh, out of them. I don't remember. I think it was maybe six or seven different types of water. Um, okay. He made pizza dough out of all of those. Um, and then um, I had a panel of, of tasters come. Um, a, a lot of sort of well-known pizza writers, um, Ed Levine, Adam Kuban, uh, Jeffrey Steingarten, um, a couple other people. Um, and so yeah. we all basically sat down and he made pizza with all of these different doughs. Um, and we tasted them all in a few different ways. Um, without, with, we tasted them without sauce. We tasted them made into margaritas. We tasted them reheated. Um, just, you know, a bunch of anything that you might potentially do normally with a pizza. Um, yeah. and, uh, and then each person without discussing, um, had to sort of evaluate, um, the qualities of the crust. Um, so talked about the crumb structure, the crispiness, the, um, the level of sort of charring that occurred on it, um, various different factors. Um, and as it turns out, um, there's really, uh, no correlation between, um, the type of water you use, uh, and the quality of the crust. There, there are other variables that, um, you know, far, 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 um, eclipse the effect that, um, that water is going to have. Um, so, you know, and so th- th- this does lead to the question, like, so why can't you make good pizza outside of New York? Um, and that's, I think, a sort of much more difficult question to answer, um, to really answer. I, I don't think it's necessarily a practical element. Um, I think p- part of it is that, um, you don't have the, um, you, you don't have the, sort of the pool of knowledge, um, yeah. uh, the, of the style of pizza that's made in New York and, um, as concentrated in other cities. Um, you also don't have sort of the same level of discerning tasters, like people who live in New York and grow up in New York, like they, you grow accustomed to that type of pizza and you're able to tell what's good and what's bad, um, et cetera. Um, whereas if you don't grow up eating that kind of pizza, it's much harder to make those sort of judgments. So, you know, while some, while a pizzeria in California making what they call New York style pizza might make decent pizza, um, to someone who's evaluating sort of on a scale of New York pizza, um, it's much harder to replicate that just because there isn't sort of that cultural knowledge, I think, built in um, to the community here. But that's Um, the point. It's it's cultural knowledge. It's not the effing water. Yeah, (laughs) I think so. I I think so. It's it's harder to test that. It's great. So um, one of the things that I loved about... uh, the food lab is that you tackled, uh, and we talked about this a little bit earlier. You you really tackled mm-hmm. recipes that um, folks uh, who who cook at home are interested in. So I love that there are right. sticky buns in here, and the one that jumps off the page at me is the cheesy chili mac. And I'm not saying that just because right. <laughs> of how beautiful the, the the picture is and how how appealing that is and how I want to I want to get at it. But, um, you know, that, that, that it's, it's that, uh, you know, taking that the approach you kind of described there to, to um, scientifically getting to the bottom of 
a New York um, pizza thesis and applying uh, that strategy to foods that 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 you know the the hungry people want to eat. Um, that's really yeah, what I, yeah. I found. That <laughs> I, I hope I got. I'm getting it right. That recipe actually ended up in there kind of accidentally because it, it was actually I was. I'd been working on the macaroni and cheese, the stovetop macaroni and cheese recipe, which um, is actually one of my favorite recipes in the book. Um, and I was also working on a weeknight chili recipe that's in the book. Um, and, you know, I, I when I do these things, I end up with with gallons and gallons of chili and mac and cheese um, that I have to find ways to get rid of. And so oh, when I, I was done with we both those friends. things, I was I like, wish, oh, uh, what do you do when you have we leftover chili and mac and cheese? Yeah, just mix it all together. Um, and that really, <laughs> that's all that recipe is. But, um, but you know, I always see, you know, part of the reason to do recipes that people want, you know, mac and cheese, whatever, th- things that are popular in Google searches, part, you know, part of it is that, is that, um, you know, I, I want to get, I want to attract readers. Like I want, I want to give people what they want. That's part of it. Um, but the more important reason I do that um, is because um, I always see the book um, not so much as a recipe book, but more as sort of a food technique book and sort of a food science book. Um, and the idea that I, that um, I have both in the book and in the column is that, um, you know, science can be dry, you know, and nobody wants to just pull out a thermodynamics textbook and thumb through it. Like you don't do that for fun. Um, but if it's put, if science is put into the context of something that we're already familiar with and something that we know and love, um, and it sort of reveals another side of that to you, then I think um, the learning becomes a lot more um, attractive, you know, and, and learning that science becomes actually really interesting. Um, so I, I sort of see it like, you know, like hiding the broccoli and the mac and cheese. It's like, um, when you read the chapter on mac and cheese, um, there is a lot of delicious stuff about mac and cheese and you're promised a really good recipe at the end. Um, but you also learn about how, um, uh, various emulsifiers work and you, and you learn about different types of cheese, um, and how the structure of cheese affects the way it melts. Um, and those are sort of the lessons that apply to mac and cheese, but they also apply to many other places. You know, they apply to making any sort of cheese set, like a bechamel. It applies to making lasagna. It applies to um, making uh, gravy. You know, it applies to making a grilled cheese sandwich um, or a cheeseburger. They're, you know, b- basically um, the, the goal is to is to sort of sneak these science lessons in um, using um, sort of foods that people are really passionate about um, as, as that avenue. Um, because I find that, um, you know, I, I learn best when I'm, when I'm reading about a subject um, that I'm, you know, really interested in um yeah absolutely so yeah absolutely I, it's it's mainly yeah i mainly it's because i want to keep things sort of fun um and i want to sort of balance that science out with um you know with the deliciousness and with that sort of sense of fun yeah and i'll i'll, I'll just make one observation a cheesy chili mm-hmm. mac is never a mistake so i, I know i know you're saying <laughs> i may have ended up there i just want to confirm to all our, our taste buds out there chili cheesy chili mac never a mistake now um Agree. <laughs> you 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 kind of touched on this a little bit. I'm interested in how you think about um, your food lab entries on Serious Eats. Kind of now, you've been associated with Serious Eats for for a while now. I've been doing food lab mm-hmm. a- entries for, for them for a while. How do you think about mm-hmm. you know what's your your approach now to that? Um, I mean, it's still basically the same as it's always been. Um, you know, I, yeah, the first food lab column I wrote, I think in 2009, um, October of 2009, and that was about hard boiled eggs. Um, and, you know, when I started it, it was basically, uh, you know, I sat down for lunch with Ed Levine, the um, the founder of Serious Eats, and he was like, you should come um, write for us. Um, what have you want, always wanted to write about? And I was like, well, I've always been interested in food and science. And so he's like, all right, like write us a food science column, um, turn it in next week, um, just write whatever you want. Um, and so I did. And, I and um, you know, I turned in basically 3,000 words on hard-boiled eggs. 
which I thought was sort of a ridiculous thing to do. Um, I thought, you know, <laughs> the editors are going to cut it down to maybe six or 800 words or something like that, um, which is a sort of more reasonable sized hard boiled article. Um, but yeah. they let it go up as was, as it was. Um, and it turned out that there's, you know, there are like a lot of people who are really interested in sort of the minute science of boiling eggs. Um, it was, um, you know, I, I did it basically because I wanted to do it. You know, um, I, I love writing about science. I like, I love doing these sorts of experiments at home. Um, and so for me, it started just, I'm, I'm just going to write what about, I'm going to write about what I care about. And if other people want to read it, cool. Um, and it just turned out that a lot of people do want to read it. Um, and that's still basically, um, the way I write the column. Um, uh, you know, I cook a lot at home. I cook, I cook for my family. I cook for friends and, um, um, and when I'm cooking new dishes, I, it's just sort of automatic for me to think about like, all right, like, um, I'm starting this new dish, like what's the best way to do it. Um, and, um, you know, so my process will involve looking up a lot of sort of existing recipes, doing a lot of research about the history of the dish, um, and you know, what it means to, um, the people who created it. Um, you know, if it's like a dish from another country, like I'd want to know how that, that dish fits in culturally in that country. Um, um, ma mainly just so that I get a sort of deeper understanding of what it is I should really be trying to, um, capture in a recipe. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, and then, and then from there, it's just sort of a series of refinements. Um, so a, a lot of it comes from before I even start cooking, um, I'll sit down and I'll, and I'll think about potential problems that, that come up. Um, and you know, I've, I've, I've been doing recipe development now for, um, over a decade. Um, so it's, it is a little bit intuitive for me to know, to say like, all right, like these are the things that um, are probably going to be issues. These are the areas I should focus my, um, testing on, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it actually is, you know, the process for me now is actually a lot more streamlined than it was when I was working at Cook's Illustrated, for example, or when I first started the food lab. Um, sure. but at the heart, it's still, you know, it's still basically the exact same thing. I, I think of a dish that, um, I enjoy, or maybe a technique or a, some kind of cooking trick or whatever. Um, and then, um, I just do as much research and testing as I, deem is necessary. Usually it's usually more than I think other people would do. Um, and sort of trying to distill that into an article. And then, you know, for me, actually the, the hardest part of, of all of, of all of this, um, of the testing and the writing and all of it, um, the hardest part for me is actually making the articles, um, fun and funny. Um, <clears throat> cause I think, you know, as I said, I think that's really an essential part of what people like about the food lab and, and sort of has been part of the idea from the beginning is that I need to make this something that people love reading, regardless of if they're going to cook or not. Uh, so after I write an article, I spend like a big chunk of time just going back through it and thinking, all right, like, how can I make this funnier, like, or more sticky? Like what, what metaphor can I think of here that would, that people would understand, but also think is sort of funny and clever, but really gets the idea of, uh, this sort of, you know, scientific principle across, um, or what running gag can I put in here? What stupid puns can I insert? Whatever, you know, just, just generally sort of working hard to make it, um, to make it funny. And, you know, a friend of mine who's a, who's a um, humor writer, you know, told me that the most difficult, the most difficult thing he knows is, um, making jokes that are funny, but sound natural, you know, like saying something, ma making yourself try and sound sort of like off the cuff, um, just clever, um, that those types of jokes usually actually take the most work to do. Um, and, and he's absolutely right about that. Just like, I think, um, you know, making, making things funny and entertaining is, is really, really hard. Um, I know. I mean, that's, that's that, some, some deep process stuff right there. We're sharing with, with our, <laughs> our taste buds. Um, I, I particularly enjoyed and admired, um, the offering in, 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 in advance of, 
Thanksgiving, uh, and I liked very mm-hmm. much um, what I saw of the green bean casserole. So <clears throat> we did a right. – uh, we had a bracket competition of savory sides uh, here okay. on, on House of Carbs, and green bean casserole didn't last very long. Uh, and mainly it was All because right. we, we um, when it's done poorly, it's really bad. And so you, you don't know going in whether whether it's going to be you know well executed or not. And that the variance there is the reason that it didn't um, survive past the first round. Um, so but who, if we had you, your version. I mean, stu- stuffing had to have won, right? Yes, yes, of course, stuffing won. <laughs> we're not maniacs here at House <laughs> gonna say. It, it was <laughs> Stuffing and mashed potatoes were in the final. Uh, it, the, okay. the final four was stuffing, mashed potatoes, macaroni and cheese, which was kind of controversial because a lot of folks from different regions of the country claim that macaroni and cheese does not belong on a Thanksgiving table. And yeah, I think it definitely does not belong like, on my table. Uh, well, that's that's okay. That's acceptable. But so I think we had Parker House Rolls was maybe the other entry there. Um, okay. Uh, gravy as a side was was pretty controversial. People didn't like the idea that it was included, um, and and uh, didn't make it you know further along the way. Um, but in any event, I'm interested in hearing about your Thanksgiving menu. Did you, did you cook for Thanksgiving? Uh, yeah, yeah. Usually I cook, and then you know the rest of the family helps out or contributes dishes. Um, this year we had Thanksgiving in Montana, um, where my oh. my old uh, sorry no uh, no Colorado. Uh, the other year we had same Thanksgiving. I have a sister in Montana and a sister in Colorado. Um, this year we were in Colorado in Boulder, uh, in a rental house that had the most ill-equipped kitchen I've ever worked in. Um, oh, which made things a challenge. It's really difficult to uh, spatchcock a turkey um, when you have like you know like my first scissors to work with. Um, so you 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 did spatchcock but, the turkey. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm a huge, huge I mean, spatchcock proponent. It's your thing. Should we tell the taste buds out there what that means? Yeah, I mean spatchcocking. Essentially, you're butterflying the turkey, so you you yeah. flip it over and cut out its backbone with a pair yeah. of strong poultry shears um, or like Fisher Price scissors, if that's all you can get. Um, and then you flip it back over and kind of pull its legs out, um, and then like push down on its breast till it's kind of flattened, um, and it looks sort of. I don't know, like deeply pornographic, um, but it um, it's got a Rorschach it cooks in about a, to it. Looks like a Rorschach test. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it cooks um, in you know like maybe a third of the time. You you can cook like a ten to twelve pound turkey um, in about ninety minutes um, in a really awesome. hot oven. Um, yeah. and you know there's numerous advantages of it. So first of all, like. Um, uh, first of all, like it, it, all of the skin gets exposed and faces upward so that fat can drain out of it as it's rendering. So you end up with lots and lots of really crispy skin. Um, it also sort of solves this problem. Like when when you cook a turkey um, in its traditional shape in a roasting pan, um, uh, the heat circulate, circulates around the top pretty well, but not very well inside that roasting pan. Um, and so what happens is that the breasts end up kind of overcooking before uh, the legs do. Um and, you know, breast meat kind of dries out. It's very, very low in fat. It dries out if it gets above around, you know, 155, 150 degrees or so. Um, whereas leg meat needs to be cooked all the way up to around 170, 165, 170 before um, it tenderizes. Um, so that's a problem with the traditional roast turkey. And it's probably why most of the turkey you've had in your life, uh, the breast meat is really dry. Um, so when you spatchcock it, it actually ends up sort of exposing those legs and putting them very close to the heat source, uh, like the sidewalls of the oven, so that... Um, Everything ends up finishing at the same time, so you have really juicy, uh, really juicy breast meat, perfectly cooked leg meat, um, and tons of crispy skin to go with it. Um, so it it is, yeah. I think it's 
the best way to cook. I mean, any kind of poultry, actually, turkey, chicken, duck, uh, goose, you know, wh- whatever it is, um, poultry and spatchcocking. Um, I am a huge, huge spatchcock proponent. Yeah, yeah. Works on the grill, too. Well, that that makes a lot of sense. I can imagine that that's what I think of as like a traditional, you know, kind of, uh, you know, like the whole thing splayed out is the way I'll say it flattened out on a on yeah. a grill, you know, has that sort of visual yeah. resonance. Um, you have a little one in your household. Uh, you have a, I do, a, yeah. a, an under under one little person, right? She's nine months, nine months right now. Yeah, Nine months. Um, how has her arrival and her her food consumption changed what you're doing in terms of your daily cooking life? Um, I mean, well, a great deal. So I'm, I mean, I'm basically a stay-at-home dad right now, which is why my title at Series Seats is Chief Culinary Advisor, um, and yeah. I'm no longer uh, Managing Culinary Director, which um, Daniel Gritzer um, is now the Managing Culinary Director there. So I still, you know, I still um, maintain close contact with Series Seats people and talk to them all the time and um, and contribute articles and recipes um, occasionally. But um, sort of my day-to-day sort of more administrative stuff there, um, I, I'm not doing right now because I'm... Um, uh, yeah, focusing on raising my daughter. Um, as far as food goes, um, I mean, a number of changes, like, first of all, like I eat much healthier now that she's on solids, um, because we do, you know, we do a a form of, uh, it's called baby led weaning where, um, essentially we didn't, we never did purees. We never did baby food. Um, she went straight from, uh, breast milk to, um, as soon as she, as soon as she could start eating, as soon as she had teeth, um, um, actually, even a little bit before that, um, she started eating basically whatever we eat, um, with the exception of a few. So, like, she won't eat like peanuts or blueberries or things that can slip down her throat. But you know, she eats sure um, grilled chicken and she eats pizza and she eats hamburgers and she eats fruit and cheese and all you know all all these different things. Um, you know, anything that we're eating, she'll eat. Um, so because of that, I now actually cook a lot. Um, and because she really loves fruit, um, there's now there's like. A never-ending supply of fresh fruit in the house, which didn't used to be the case. Um, yeah, um, I'm much more careful to make sure that all of my meals are sort of balanced um, um, and have a lot more vegetables and and whatever you know, um, l- less carbs, um, um, less carb-heavy and more and more vegetable-heavy. So it, I, I actually tend to eat a lot better now um, that she's here, um, and it's great. It's it's a lot of fun, you know. Um, she. So far in her life, um, I've been trying to make sure that she eats something different at every single meal. Um, huh. With a couple exceptions, you know, she'll she'll I mean, still a big have like cheese and yogurt and whatever fruit for breakfast because yeah. she enjoys yeah. that. Um, but um, certainly for for dinner, um, lunch and dinner every day, um, I cook uh, a new thing every time. Um, wow! So that she just has sort of this like constant. Um, uh, I don't know. Every she really looks forward to meal times. You know, like every every meal time is like a new sort of adventure for her and. Um, I'm sure that I'm just lucky and that, um, and that probably in three months, she's going to decide that she's totally picky and only wants to eat, um, toast and cheese or whatever. Um, uh, cause I hear that does happen to some parents, but for now, um, she's like a super adventurous eater. She eats spicy foods. Like we take her out to restaurants. Um, so it's been, it's been, um, it's been a lot of fun. That's, that's, uh, outstanding. Now look, um, with your indulgence, I, I, um, I have to have you back. I know that you are working on, and uh, I think you don't have a title yet, but I know you're working on a sequel to the Food Lab. Um, yeah. And so I want to yeah. have you on to talk about that. And you know, there are oh, absolutely throughout yeah. 
throughout the, the, the year, there are um, many outstanding food moments where I'll click over to Serious Eats to see what you're up to in terms of the food lab. Like, what do you recommend? Oh, it's grilling season's coming around. Let me see what Kenji's got going on here as grill season approaches. Um, but mm-hmm. one of the things we do here on House of Carbs, the first time we have a guest on, we ask them to give us a little bit of insight into what their last meal on earth might consist of. I mean, we, we don't try and be morbid about it, but we we want to okay. get your your thoughts on kind of what are some and and the nice thing about this is look, you know, you're not eating for health, uh, so you can you can be as decadent as you right. like. Um, <laughs> let, let's hear what would show up on the on the table. And, for and your does last this have to be like it. a reasonable meal, or can I pull like pe- things from various? Oh, restaurants it's, it's very dish, unreasonable. Like, it's it's your last okay, meal. All right. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I think I would start with a slice of pizza um, from Patsy's, uh, the yep. original yeah. one in in uh, East Harlem. Um, so coal oven, coal oven, New York style pizza. Awesome. Um, I would have that. Um, lots of red pepper flakes on it. Um, uh-huh. I would have some mapo tofu. Um, from uh, Chen Restaurant in um, in uh, Chengdu, um, either Great. that or from Fulun in uh, Fulun in Malden um, in in Mass, Massachusetts, uh-huh. um, or or I guess I could make it at home. Um, definitely would have mapo, mapo tofu there. Great. Um, I would have um, my mother's uh, gyoza dumplings. Good. Well done. You got to um, include a, which... a one dish from mom. Yeah, which I uh, admittedly aren't particularly great dumplings. Um, like the, her, her method for making dumpling filling was um, combining ground beef with whatever vegetable scraps she had left in the fridge, sort of grated on a box grater. Um, so, so some sometimes they were really good, sometimes they were not. Um, but, but still, um, you know that that's one of my sort of earlier food memories. I guess was me and my sisters. Um, sitting in front of the TV, folding dumplings for the month. We would do this like once every month or two months or so, and just sit there and fold like hundreds of dumplings so that we'd have dumplings in the freezer. Um, yeah. So some of those dumplings. Great. Um, shoot. What else would I take? Any dessert? Are you, I, I know you're ma- mainly a savory guy, but any sweets? Uh, I'm not really a dessert guy. You know, if anything, it would be, um, you know what it would be? Um, we have a plum tree in my, backyard um oh, and lovely it's i'm sure it's i'm sure it's just cycling my head but i swear like it produces the best plums um i've ever had in my life um yeah this year very low crop but in previous years you know it, it would produce like 80 to 100 pounds of them and so all through the summer i could go out there in the morning pick a plum off and eat it or after dinner whenever i want something like sweet um so yeah like a perfect plum i think um and maybe some really good chocolate but I don't really need the chocolate. Um, yeah, I would I would put a perfect plum on that list, which is a very California That's, thing to say, I guess. Yeah, well, but look, it's your it's your last meal. If you, <laughs> you know that the, your tree is going to give off the perfect plum. There is kind of a a um, a beautiful existential connection there. The tree in your backyard producing kind of the last sweet thing. So um, we, yeah. we we applaud it. We applaud the effort. Um, <laughs> and I'd like and I'd like my daughter there, my daughter there to share it also. Of course, goes without saying. Of course, uh, thank you so much for coming on uh, House of Carbs. Like I say, you're you're uh, going to become a regular guest if as much as we can pester you into coming on. Um, sure I'm really excited to to see how this uh, the sequel to Food Lab comes together. Um, 
Well, what is the timing? When, yeah, when, when should we be? Well, the no, the book. I mean, the book probably won't be released until 2019. So there's a good, oh, there's okay. a good chunk of time before that. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll just keep following um, along so, on the food lab because I'm sure that. Yeah, that, I mean, I, know, I have other, I have other projects coming up. Um, like I have a restaurant actually opening in January. Um, oh. If you guys want to come out to the Bay Area for some sausages, but um, yeah, I, yes. I, have, I have some other projects in the work in the meantime. But uh, the book will be around 2019. Okay, well, the the restaurant um, in January that that's I I've, I've been looking for an excuse to invite myself out to go see the Warriors. So a Warriors game and sausages at your restaurant, I think that's kind of a lot. Yeah, right. Perfect. Yeah, Kenji, thank you so much for joining us on House of Cards. Thanks for having me. All right, my hungry homies, big big thanks. To Kenji Lopez out. Awesome conversation about what he's doing on the food science scene, making your home cooking easier. Before we move on to food news, how about a word from our good pals at Captera? It is that time of year again. My podcast pals, when the days are shorter, don't waste your precious daylight sifting through a sea of search results when looking for the right business software. Get home on time tonight with CapTerra.com. Whether you are a startup looking to keep better track of customers, a nonprofit, hoping to have a record fundraising year, or a business that simply needs better payroll software, if you need software and you're a business, Captera's got you covered. Search their 400 categories of software and discover the right tool for your business. Email marketing to scheduling to accounting, whatever you need. Captera makes it easy to find what you're looking for. They have thousands of ratings and reviews from actual software users just like you. And best of all, using Captera is absolutely free. That's F-R-E-E, free. 2018 will be here before you know it. It's right around the corner. Make sure you've got the software your business needs today to help you do what you do better. Join the millions who use Captera. That's C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A dot com slash carbs. Captera dot com slash carbs. My friends, we also have a word from the very good people at canvaspeople.com. As everyone knows, Christmas and Hanukkah are both coming up, and that means family gatherings, seeing beloved friends, and another year of celebrating unique traditions. It's a time to make memories that you will cherish for years to come, and you ought to be taking tons of great pictures, which you can preserve Thanks to a great special deal from canvaspeople.com. For those of you who don't know, canvaspeople.com is an easy-to-use photo-to-canvas service that takes your favorite photo memories and turns them into beautiful artwork. Instead of snapping that beautiful photo of a delicious Katz's Deli pastrami sandwich. Don't let that that photo sit there rotting in your cell phone. Bring it to life and put it up on your walls or give that as a great gift. Kyle, the producer, you may be getting for me this year a beautiful Katz pastrami sandwich. All canvases are of the highest quality made here in the U.S. Plus, everything ships fast with great attention to detail. With over one million happy customers served, you can buy with confidence. 
normally, my friends, 11 by 14 canvases. That's a good size photo right there. They're priced at 69.99, 70 bucks. But now, as a limited time offer, you can get one free 11 by 14 canvas. Just pay the shipping to get this amazing deal, my hungry homies. Go to canvaspeople.com and use the offer code CARBS in the cart at checkout. That's canvaspeople.com, promo code C-A-R-B-S. Get those beautiful food photos onto some canvas. Canvaspeople.com, promo code C-A-R-B-S. All right, Hungry Hobies, it is now time for Food News. Juliette Littman, what's happening? Hello. Happy December, House. Happy December. I have a question for you. Please. You did not have Thanksgiving leftovers physically in your refrigerator to store. So what did you eat last week, the first week post-Thanksgiving? PT, your first week of eating after Thanksgiving. What did I have? Yeah, like what what, what was on the the docket? Well— I had a holiday party on Saturday. Can I tell you about it? Oh, yeah. I'm into it. Here we go. The holiday parties are underway. Yes, they are. It was a back it was a backyard bash. I have um, a small apartment but a large backyard and I like hosting there very much. And so I um I've done barbecues, I've done like sit-down dinners, but I had a new strategy for this time. And let me tell you, I might never have a party any other way. I went to Costco on Saturday morning. I went straight to the freezer section and I bought Pigs in a blanket, mozzarella sticks, mm. and mini quiche, and then I yep. also and then I also had like you know some some like crudite cheese and crackers, etc. And it was only apps, so it was an apps only party, and it was a huge hit. I think it was like the most successful party I've ever thrown, and I think it's because you just cannot go wrong with pigs in a blanket and mozzarella sticks. Like you cannot fail. Yeah, and 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 Costco delivers those items in a, in like the the perfect quantities. Yes. To accommodate your party goals. Yeah. And super easy to to whip, put in the oven or drop in the fryer, whatever you did in the way of the preparation. Super easy, right? Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I just think that apps, most people at like a party, apps are you overload them on them anyway. So why follow it up with a meal? Although I will say a friend who came on the later or like the later side brought a pizza with her and at the pizza place she had it sl- sliced into like 16ths instead of eighths. That was a huge mm. hit too. That's pretty brilliant. I will yeah. say the uh, the Podfather himself. You're you're bringing to mind. I'm recalling one of the Grantland uh, Christmas parties where he had a food truck come, and I think it was a chili oh, yes. dog food truck. Is it that was what a, it was? Yeah, it was a chili truck. I love that that one. Um, so it was it was delicious. But here's the thing. Uh, I'm drawing a distinction. That's a tough thing to pull off and keep that party vibe, that party mode going yes. because it's it's sloppy. It was not really easy to and heavy. You know, he- both of those things, exactly right. Yeah. So I went straight into the Christmas season. Is basically my my answer to your question. I was feeling festive, and yeah, I just I, I was I'm in the party zone right now, and I'm loving it. I- I'm so happy to hear that. Um, we did not compare notes on this before the pod this afternoon, this this recording we're doing. I, too, just like you, am all the way in on the holiday spirit. And for me, that means green means go on all dietary restrictions going <laughs> the F out the window. Oh, yeah. I am. I am eating. I am. I'm eating and I'm eating and I'm eating. 
the Mike Lombardi tweeted at me before the Deadskins Cowboys game. I hope House has a feast. I it, I was inspired by that. I went out and got a dozen tacos. I I made a joke about drinking a quart of wild turkey. I didn't drink a whole quart of it. I might have had a sip at the end, uh, but we're only at halftime. I'm on uh, 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 I we had uh, pizza this week from a place we haven't tried before. So that means we get the big 18-inch and and a deep dish because we want to compare and contrast. This is just for me and my wife. Nice. And and two dozen wings because we want to try the wings a couple of different ways as well. So I we, I, we as it is the sort of holiday season, we get together with another uh, f- couple families at Friday night. I come home. There's still three quarters of the deep dish pizza in there. 11:45 at night. Daddy's hungry. Down goes the pizza, and I was and I was worried about it being too spicy. It was a nice pepperoni deep dish. Uh, you know, it's like an East Coast version. I don't nobody sure. in Chicago should, would be impressed by this, but it was it was tasty at eleven forty five at night on a Friday. A quarter of a of a gallon of vanilla ice cream still in the fridge from from Thanksgiving. Down, nice. down it goes. Nice. There we go. Daddy needs a midnight snack. So we're officially in the holiday season. I'm so happy, Juliet. I, it, it is a wonderful time of year. Can I lead right into a food news story for you with that? I on think that you note? should. Okay, yeah. great. Applebee's is also feeling the holiday spirit. And for the entire month of December, you can get a $1 Long Island iced tea. Let me tell you a little bit more about this. This is from their their uh, their their press release. So I'm just going to give you the information that's provided to me, and then we can really like analyze what's going on here. So saith Applebee's, Applebee's is changing the cocktail game this this holiday season by offering a new one dollar Long Island iced tea, better known as the dollar L I T or the dollar lit, like it's lit, as the kids were saying <laughs> earlier this year. <laughs> um, the cocktail is not lit, man. No. Sorry, that was I'm, it's, my it's bad. okay. No, I you know I didn't own that meme enough, and I regret it. But anyway, I'm gonna have to put that back in my mouth. I'm sorry for saying it. <laughs> Um, the cocktails made the delicious new mix of vodka, rum, gin, tequila, triple sec, and sweet and sour mix with a splash of cola. The Applebee's oh dollar LIT is available all day at participating Applebee's restaurants nationwide every day in December and for only one dollar. One dollar oh, house. Wait, wait, wait. Did you say all day? All day. He said, like, whenever it opens, you can go and get it. I mean, Applebee serves breakfast. Many Applebee's serve breakfast, yes. right? Yes, they do. So you could go have a breakfast Long Island iced tea or four, if that was your, yeah. your inclination, for $4? I, <laughs> I like to have many um, beverages at each meal. Like, I always have, like, a minimum of two, like, club soda and Arnold Palmer, or coffee and a club soda. Like, you know, I mix it up. So I would just go and get a coffee and a dollar LIT. Start the day off right. I have to tell you, if I was in college and underage, I would take this as a personal challenge. This would be <laughs> like it, – because it's it's we're, we're rapidly approaching or maybe we're already in it exam season, right? Oh, yes. So, yeah. uh, I, you know, whenever I finish that big chemistry exam, I need to blow off some steam. I'm going straight to Applebee's with my fake ID. I mean, this is really it, – it needs – uh, for for Applebee's, all of their employees across the nation, all of their customer service, all of it on high alert for fake IDs. Because you put something out like this, it's the college kids that are coming for it. I know. I know. Do you agree? Yes. My college town had a Chili's and I would have traveled to get to an Applebee's for this. At least if only to say that I did it. Yeah, I went to Applebee's for, wh- for the dollar L-I-T. 
$1. Like I finished the exam at 12.30, say. I'm starving. I'm sleep deprived. I'm, I want five LITs. I want I want five right now. Just for five bucks, here's my $5. Bring me five right away, five, please. Five, but I would take an exam, go at like two o'clock, have five, take an Uber back and just go into straight into my bed because I'd be done for. <laughs> of course. Now, <laughs> does the story say anything about, is there a limit on how many you can order? Um, great question. I believe that um, the takeout, which is part of the Gizmodo Media Group, asked this, and the Applebee's smoke spokeswoman said, we don't set any limits on the number a person can order, but we have a code of responsible service of alcohol that we abide to. It's not supposed to be a go and get drunk. You're supposed to be taking advantage of the fact that you can get a great drink for just a dollar. So, Oh, my God. That's a pretty... Di- <laughs> it pretty, sounds like a go and get drunk to me. Yeah, it's a pretty diplomatic answer. It's like, no, we're not saying get drunk, but here, get drunk. So yeah. <laughs> it sounds like Applebee's I mean, is the place to be right now. It's, I'm I'm in. I, yeah. I have to try one of these. Yeah. Maybe I'll go there and take a picture and throw it up on the House of Cards. Oh Instagram. yes, great idea, House. Right? Yeah, totally. For a, for a buck, yeah. I mean, it's worth it. At least know, a one, shot, right? And even if it's disgusting, you've only spent a dollar on it. It's a great point. Yeah. Okay. On to We're our next. We're off and piece. rolling. Yeah. Holy cow! What a story. We are just moving along here. Um, we've talked about it before on this podcast. Chipotle introduced queso, and. That's not it. Not everyone loved it. And Chipotle trying to get back on top of the fast casual space where we liked them. And this is one of their only this is not their only move this week. They also replaced their CEO last week. Um, Oh, but so they introduced queso. It didn't go that well. So they've already uh, overhauled the menu, the recipe. And um, this is a story that comes from us, comes to us from the dailymeal.com. And um, here's what they are reporting. Um, months later, it's been revealed that Chipotle's tweet that Chipotle has tweaked their queso recipe and is even testing a brand new menu item to highlight it. And this is a quote from Chipotle. Back when we first launched queso, we said we continue to tweak the recipe, and that's exactly what we've done. Chipotle's queso is creamier, but still has a really delicious flavor and is still made with all real ingredients. Um, what does the all real ingredients mean? It's like real cheese, like a lot of cheese. Okay. It's not like cheese its or cheese powder or whatever it is. Um, It's also rumored that the new item that they're testing is nachos. Chipotle's next kitchen, which opened in New York City this summer, is testing nachos. And they're available as a side item or a snack with tortilla chips, queso, beans, and salsa for $4.80 a pop. And patrons can add meat or guacamole for an additional cost. So if I was in New York right now, I would go try this immediately because I love nachos, I love Chipotle, and I want to believe in them. You you and me both... The queso was met with such derision. The hungry people did not like the, the first iteration of Chipotle queso. So I'm glad that they've listened to the hungry people and they're, they went back into the test kitchen and they're continuing to tweak. I, I still haven't tried it because I listen. You know, when the hungry people speak, I listen. Uh, people were very unkind. The, the nicest one I've seen in these descriptions is a crime against cheese. I don't want to talk about it uh some of the other ways that folks were characterizing it but if they're gonna you know try and make some progress try and continue to innovate uh i like very much the idea of of nachos i'm skeptical about them being on taco bell nacho quality you know (laughs) because taco bell really sets the standard for me in terms of nachos speaking of 11 45 in the evening meal Um, that's interesting. I never get nachos at Taco Bell. That's because I always do the drive-thru. I think if I was going inside, I would consider it. But nachos are a table food for sure. They bring the nachos in a perfect self-contained container. They really? don't need no. They don't need a dip clip. 
Really? They just bring it to you. Okay. They're, they're, they're in a thing that you can definitely navigate in the car with one hand while you have the other hand on the steering wheel, maybe after four or five beers, but I don't recommend that. Nobody out there should do it that way. I'm just saying that it's all possible. Wow. Okay. I'm going to yeah. try them out then. Um, okay. In any case, I hope this is good news for Chipotle. I worry about them, but you know, we'll do what we can. I'm not. Why, why do you worry about them? Well, it's been tumultuous. They had the food poisoning, like like three. They had three food poisoning scares. They've changed their CEO. Um, it's been a rocky time. They also just uh, I've read a few reports that they have not recovered financially to the peaks that they were at like three years ago. I don't know. It's they're they're ubiquitous and they continue to deliver strong product. I don't, I'm not a shareholder, so I don't really care about their financial success. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I want them to maintain the food quality standards that they've set. Uh, and that's as far as my um, concern for Chipotle runs. <laughs> okay, great. So you're not worried. <laughs> then I won't be either. Next story. This comes to us from, to, from Food Beast. And this is about a man who used an empty chip bag to help him play hooky from work for two years. What a story. So this guy, he was in Australia. His name is Tom. And according to the Telegraph, Tom would hide his work like mobile phone in an empty bag of Twisties, which is the kind of chip we don't have here, to prevent his GPS from being tracked. Twisties chip bags contain a lining of foil that allows them to act like a makeshift Faraday cage that blocks electromagnetic signals. By placing his PDA, his mobile phone, in the empty chip bag, Tom was able to avoid work to go golfing on multiple occasions as the GPS signal was glitched up. Thus, he was basically getting paid his $111,000 Australian salary, which is about $84,000 in the U.S., not bad, to play golf. And after two years, he was eventually caught and fired by his company after an anonymous letter was filed with the business that spilled the beans on his sneaky actions. Tom appealed the firing with Australia's Fair Work Commission, but the tribunal court ruled in favor of his bosses, who presented evidence that he was at the golf club and didn't check in to required work areas on multiple occasions. This is legendary. Um, house. This is just legendary. So, I love Tom. I also love Australians because this is this is exactly I have this uh, elevated view of the Australian sort of free spirit ethos. Uh, I have no no basis in fact for um, you know I've all the Australians I've known have been uh, lovers of life. And I just picture Tom as a real lover of life. Yes. He's like, I, I could go do this installation job. He's an electrician by trade, I believe. I could go do this, uh, you know, the 60 watt uh, heavy up at this residence, or I could go play 18 unbelievable holes with my mates and have, you know, some, some, I, I, a lot of the, the hungry people out there are Australian. We get um, tons of stuff sent to us. I was going to try and name an Australian dish that's been sent to us, but I was, I'm, I'm positive I would botch it. So I'll leave that alone. I am interested in twisties. So Do we know what twisties are? Yeah, they look like, um, like uh, the crunchy um, Cheetos, like the crunchy small kind. You know what I mean? Okay. But the, the twisty doesn't refer to the shape. They, I, or, that, or does it? They kind of look twisty if you look at them. <laughs> All right. I'm going to look them up. I want to I want to get at some twisties. Yeah. Wonder, they're like crunchy Cheetos. If, do I have to import them? Or, or there, is it possible probably. to get them domestically? Yeah, okay. you probably well, do. One of our Australian pals could could hit us up with some twisties. We could yeah, include Aussies. those in one of our taste tests. Hit us up. That would be nice. The, the Aussies are awesome. But this dude, I I mean, obviously I get down with him because he plays golf. So he was using his, uh, you know, this this uh, 
subterfuge for the forces of good, which is to go play golf. I just wonder, like, how was it that he was able to avoid detection for two years? I don't know. I don't we like just, I could see him getting away with that for like three months. But at some point, like the electrical work's got to get done. I know. Yeah, he was electrician right? in Perth. I don't I don't really know. I guess. I don't know. How many times have you like had an issue in your home with like electric or something else? And like the process gets drawn out, like takes longer than it's supposed to. Like a lot. So every time. Yeah. <laughs> so basically every time. So if like he if he's smart about it, only adding like an extra day to each job instead of like the same customer always getting um, delayed, then maybe you don't go you don't get detected for a while. Well, you know, this is a great point. And he clearly is a smart guy because he was sticking his uh, PDA in the bag of twisties and w- he knew that the. <laughs> that the bag would protect, you know, his his tracking. Yeah, so, I will say. Great an, job, Tom. In an ironic twist, Tom is now reportedly working as an Uber driver, which is entirely dependent on GPS systems. So that's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> um, a lot our, less golf. Our final, our final story, slightly controversial, and you have an important take to share on it, is about Waffle House. And this story you may have seen online has become a bit of a viral sensation. And so here's what happened. A guy in the South, in South Carolina, to be precise, went to a Waffle House last week, early Thursday, late Wednesday, only to find that the restaurant staff was snoozing. So this slightly inebriated man, to quote the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, says that he cooked up his own meal while snapping selfies along the way, as one does. And so here's what Alex, the man who made his own meal at Waffle House, told said. I walked back outside to my car to look for employees. No one was in sight. So... And, t- and he went back into the, inside the restaurant and noticed there was an employee who happened to be sleeping in a corner booth. And so then he decided to just take matters into his own hands. To quote Alex, I got hot on the grill with a double Texas bacon cheesesteak with extra pickles. When I was done, I cleaned the grill, collected my ill-gotten sandwich, and rolled out. He says, I give all the credit to my old friend, Vodka. And then, as proof, he posted photos of himself on Facebook. And um, even Waffle House has weighed, has weighed in now. And uh, here's a quote from Waffle House. For safety reasons, our customers should never have to go behind the counter. Rather, they should get a quality experience delivered by friendly associates. We're reviewing this incident and we'll take appropriate disciplinary action. So since this has happened, the gentleman who um, worked at Waffle House has been suspended. And this, as I said, has become a viral sensation. And I think you and I both don't find this that funny. Well, it, I, you know, it, 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 I'm pulled in multiple directions here. That's why I'm stumbling to get it out. On let's the talk, one let's hand, just talk it through. This gentleman, Mr. Bowen, is a genius. Alex Bowen, all credit to you. This was quite brilliant because you chose exactly the correct sandwich. That double Texas bacon cheesesteak with extra pickles, that's a that's a Joe House go-to order. Quite brilliant. And he was a very conscientious thief. Not only did he clean the grill and and after after preparing the thing. But I, I saw one of these reports suggested he went back and paid for the sandwich. Yes. Which I was going to say, I'm. it's essential that he paid for the sandwich. So I'm very glad he did. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, he he took it uh, with the correct, uh, you know, generosity of spirit. He enjoyed the opportunity that Mr. Vodka pre- pre- presented to him. Um, it, I think it's proper for uh, Waffle House to encourage... Um, most of their customers not to take matters into their own hands that way. Here's the concern that I have. I'm worried about the guy, uh, the, the the staffer at Waffle House. I am too. Because, because he 
clearly had something going on in his life that had him asleep in a booth, sure. you know, kind of late night at, at, at his job, which is kind of suboptimal. Yes. So yeah. what I worry is, you know, he's been suspended. I'm worried that they're going to fire him. And I've constructed a, this this story in my head. I have no idea whether or not the employee, uh, and I don't know anything about his background, but what if he, he, you know, the Waffle House is his side hustle. He has a day job that has him, you know, doing wh- whatever. It could be construction. It could be janitorial. It could be anything. And then he does a side hu- hustle at night, you know, to, to so that his kid can have the Air Jordans uh, as opposed to, you know, whatever the generic um, shoes might be at a um, second tier shoe store. And, you know, he, he, his, his uh, downfall was sitting down in a booth after it has to have been a considerable length of time since his last customer visited the restaurant, right? Right. Because you can't just, more unless also, he was so tired that he fell asleep and it didn't, he, he was a quick sleeper. It's a Wednesday. It's not like a, who's, who's out on a Wednesday that late anyway? You know, it's like Alex, probably Alex like 2 a.m. Yeah, Alex Bowen. I'm just saying, it's not like he fell asleep, but like on a a Friday or a Saturday or even a Thursday. It's also kind of curious. I would have guessed, and maybe this is completely, uh, you know, me filling in silly blanks, that he would have not been alone at the restaurant. It seems a little, you know, in an overnight kind of context for a place that that wants to be open 24 hours. You want? I think it's better to have two people. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So, you know, something like this uh, is less likely to happen. And if somebody needs to sleep in in an extended quiet period, one person can sleep while the other person mans the station. Yeah, that's a good point. Like maybe he it shouldn't just be one person alone. Also, like what if that was like someone who was dangerous came in and he was by himself? Well, that's, you know. Uh, I, I didn't want to raise that. In this day and age, you know, it should be the case that, that you ought to be able Sorry. to, that the Waffle House I went is a dark. safe space. I went dark, but it's just saying, if you're going to, if we're going to talk well, about safety. Well, Waffle House should be a safe space. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, we're, we're in agreement about that. So yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm being a little soft on this guy. No, I'm with you. Whoever the was. I just, we just don't want to laugh. I think the point is we don't want to just, we don't want to laugh at him. And we also don't want to see him lose his job if there was extenuating circumstances. So while yeah. Al- Alex Bowen, funny, ha ha, shouts to you, let's also just think about the guy who worked there. We don't, we just don't want anything uh, bad to happen to him that he doesn't deserve. Yeah. I mean, I'll give Alex Bowen a pat on the back oh, for, yeah. for the ingenuity. Absolutely. You know, seizing the moment. Carpe yeah. diem, Alex Bowen. Made, well done there. We're talking about you on Food News. You did something something worthwhile. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, if if indeed the employee has a sympathetic story, then let's show him a little generosity of spirit. It is the holiday season, Juliet. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Come on, All Waffle right. House. Find that. Ha- have some pigs in a blanket in your backyard and you'll find the holiday spirit. I know I did. <laughs> oh, what a perfect ending. Thank you, Juliet. <laughs> Thanks, House. I will talk to you next week. Can't wait. podcast pals thank you so much for the listen to house of carbs part of the ringer podcast network as always please keep up the outstanding belly sourcing the instagram is at the house of carbs 
We also have our email, houseofcarbsfans at gmail.com. I'm very pleased to announce my podcast, pals, my taste buds. We have as a guest for the week of Christmas, a special edition of House of Carbs. We have Chef Richard Blaze of Top Chef fame. He's been on, I think, 15 or 20 or 75 of those shows. I'm overstating it for effect. Chef Blaze is coming on. We're going to do a special mailbag edition. Trademark the pod father. Ask me anything. Chef Blaze and I will be convened together. We're going to record the next couple of weeks. And we're going to have a show go up Christmas week with your questions. So think about what you want to ask. You can hit us at the House of Carbs Instagram. We're going to have a story go up this week. You can put your questions underneath that story. You can hit me at House from DC on both Instagram and Twitter. Hit me with your questions for Chef Blaze. We're going to have a great conversation about all things. There are no holes barred in this AMA. House from DC and Chef Blaze getting down in belly town. So hit us up, my friends. We shall be back next week with another episode. But until then, let's stay hungry out there. <laughs> <laughs>